So today we are looking at um, what's kind of my favourite topic. What, um, if I could, I'd do a much longer section in the course on, namely virtue. Virtue and the passion. So those are the two things you were asked to read for today. So, both of these things move us. So, when I offered you a jelly bean earlier, there was something in your body that moved. Yes, even before you decided, something in you moved you to the jelly bean. And there might have been a number of things that moved you. Um, there might just have been the, the pleasure of the sweetness that moved you. That might have been fighting with another movement about the diet that you're working on or the health content or the fact as you got something of an idea of what's in these and maybe when we were discussing apparent goods rather than real goods, <laughs> there's not much real in that. You know, a number of things moved within you. Well, passions are one of these things at a more foundational level that something in you moves when you see something. Now in a virtue, we have trained that movement so that it responds in a certain way. Yeah, so if, um, you know, some mornings we have donuts down in the ref for breakfast. Um, I like donuts. Now I could, have donuts for breakfast every day. I could have 10 donuts for breakfast every day. Yeah. Now the first morning, <laughs> the first morning I did that, I'd feel a little sick, yeah? But if I did that the next day, and the next day, and the next day, my body would kind of adapt. Um, not only would my body change, but the key point here is, is my passions would change in that I would look at 10 donuts and actually at a certain stage that would just look natural to me. I wouldn't look at 10 donuts and say, oh, that's a lot, but I'm gonna enjoy it. I'd look at it and it would just look normal. We can habituate ourselves to whatever measure we give ourselves within some limits. Um, conversely, I might live a super healthy lifestyle, um, be utterly aware of having read the contents of the Krispy Kreme packet to know exactly what's in the donut, um, and I will only ever have a donut once a month because I know what's in them. And when I look at a donut, yes, the sweetness moves me, yes, I see the texture and the, the filling of the, the custard in the Boston cream. I'm seeing all that, but I've habituated and trained myself so that actually I don't grab it and want another nine. I look at it with the measure I have trained myself in, that my passions aren't just something I'm born with, they're something I can train. 
and I can train my passions in a good way by repetition, or, and when we have a good training, that's what we call basically a virtue, but if I've trained it in repetition, doing the wrong thing again and again and again, to the extent that, at a certain stage, I don't even see it as wrong anymore, it just looks normal to me. Then I have what we call a vice within me. So, this is what we're looking at today. The passions, these movements, and how we train them, if we train them well, to become virtues. Um, would it be possible to, I guess, habituate yourself so much to tell yourself that the donut is not good, that you no longer take pleasure in eating the donut anymore. Exactly, yeah. So that you'd always, I think, have a physical kick from the sugar. Yeah. The, the, but because you engage with the food, as with everything else, not just at a bodily level, but you're a rational being, you can do that to an extent that you wouldn't actually have a you certainly wouldn't get a spiritual pleasure or an intellectual pleasure, but so that the donut just looks repulsive to you. I know what's in those things. I'm not having one. So yes, and, and repetition is one of the ways. So to look at it one way, intellectually, I can think that through about the donut, um, but that doesn't mean I've got the passion habituated so I've thought it all through donuts are bad for me, I'm not going to have any more donuts um, but I see it and before I think about it, it's down yeah? um, so to train the passions takes action, takes repetition and it's that habituation within us of the passions that is, is virtue when it's a good habituation Okay, good question, and that's hopefully what I'll elaborate on through this lecture. So, let... Okay, so let us imagine there is a thing here, okay? Um, and how do we engage with the things? So I was giving the example of the donuts or the jelly beans. How do I engage? Well, the first thing is there's um, an apprehension. So I see the thing. So that is a matter of, um, of knowledge. And that triggers something in me. So I have what St. Thomas calls appetites, and he would use this phrase appetites very technically. It doesn't just mean something you feel for hunger, for food. Um, but there's just kind of a base level movement within you to all kinds of things. So I go into Best Buy and I see the 85-inch screen TV. And that isn't a physical hunger, 
but there is an appetite. I've apprehended and wow. There's a movement in me saying, I want that. Appetites. Now, those are kind of a general thing. We get more specifically these things called the passions that are much more particular. So basically you have two appetites, or rather the sensible appetite and the intellectual appetite. Um, and then within the sensible you have the concupiscible and the irascible. So that that's only gives you three categories of appetites. Whereas the passions, there are lots and lots of different passions. So a general, slightly more particular, much more particular in terms of how you respond to a thing. And if you remember, when we looked at the question of sin, we talked about real and apparent goods, that some things have an appearance of good, but they're not really good. And a sin you know, is masquerading as a good. That's why you move towards it. There's something about it that has been dressed up to look attractive, dressed up to look good. So this apprehension might be real or it might be apparent. I'm going to map this out slightly differently now. You know my beautiful artwork with eyes, yes? So, I'm going to imagine three aspects of you, which I'm going to make out to be three different eyes. You're a rational being, so you have an intellect. So, you behold something, and your intellect is thinking about it. But you also, you're bodily, so you have passions. And your passions, when your intellect thinks certain things, your passions are correspondingly triggered in a different way. So back to my lovely Krispy Kreme donut. That Boston cream, you know, not that far down the road. I can look at it and I can see the sugar coating. I can imagine its taste. I can, in my intellect and thinking, imagine the texture and just how sweet and soft it'll be going down. And the more my intellect is focusing on those aspects, the more a certain type of passion is awaited, awakened within me. But I can also, in my thinking, think about how many laps around the grounds I'm going to have to do to burn off the fat in that donut. I can think about the fact that I'm 50 years old now and the cholesterol in that donut, you know, it's going to be lining those arteries. Um, 
I can think about all those things in my intellect and my passion changes in how, even at a bodily level, I'm moved to the donut. So different thinking in my intellect awakens a different passion, even at a bodily level. Yeah, can we all see that that's, that is how we function? Um, and sometimes we can play this game with ourselves. That I want to do something or I'm moved to do something I know isn't right. And I can tell myself to think differently. And it awakens something differently. Now the third part of the puzzle here, the will. That is also seeing that thing. And there is an interplay between these three things. So my will senses that my passions are moving me to the donut. And if I don't do something really that the strength of this passion, I'm going to get the donut. So my will tells my intellect to think about the fat content. Yeah, so that there's a, a to-and-fro going on there between the intellect and the will. And then, actually, my will can choose to ignore my passion. That, yes, I feel this movement to the donut. The passion is there. But my will can command not to do it. So that we can have... On one level, you might see it as kind of a battle between these different parts within us. Another way we can think of it is an, an, inter, an interaction. Um, whereas the man of virtue has trained himself by repeating a good action again and again, that actually his passion just spontaneously moves the way he's trained it to move from how he's acted before. So those of you that are at, sorry, are you gonna? I just wanna clarify, you're, are you arguing that the passions can be uh, like changed, I guess? Definitely, okay. yes, yes. Um, your appetites can't be changed at your base, base level, but the manifestation of them and the passions, yes, that can be changed. And the thing that changes them is repetition of certain actions. So those of you that are athletes, if you go running, the first time you run a mile, it hurts. Yeah? The second time you run it, having run it, run a mile repeatedly, the body just by repetition has been trained to be able to do it. And not just your body, but your thinking engages with this as just something, I can do this. This is a normal thing to do. Um, well, in the same way that repetition, the athlete forms his body, in repetition, the man of virtue forms his virtues. That our acts change us. Our acts are what builds character within us. And that's what we want. Because if you've got that built within you, 
then you don't just have to kind of fight your passions with your will commanding the passions, no donut, um, that you know, you've trained yourself that actually it's, it's easy to resist the donut. So the Catechism says, as you've hopefully read, that joy and ease come to the man of virtue. Whereas when we don't have virtue, then each time we're fighting against our passions is kind of a whole new fresh battle. And if actually what I've formed in myself is the reverse, that I've got a long habit of strengthening all the passions to the wrong things, then for my will to override that is possible, but it's really hard work. So the thing that does this is repetition. Repetition is the key to virtue. But you've got to be repeating the right thing. If you repeat the wrong thing, it doesn't do any good. And even if you repeat the right thing, but in the wrong way, it does something damaging to you. Okay, if you're mapping out this on a sheet, note there's a space here. I've got something more I'm going to write later in the lecture there. But um, let's turn to the notes and just read through a bit more slowly what we're doing. And note, I say repetition is what forms virtues. Repetition is also what forms thinking. So why do I do something on the board and then go through it slowly in the notes? and ask you to read about that topic before class, because repetition, 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 this is what helps things to sink in. And some of us work really well with oral exchange. Some of us work really well with things mapped out on a board, and other people kind of like to read it for themselves. So that's kind of why I try to throw things at you in different ways even within one hour slot. Okay, so page one of the lecture notes. So, virtue and the formation of the passions. So at the top of the page you say, what is virtue? Well, I say it's a notion that connects various things within us. It connects reason with the body, because the body's passions are integrated in virtue. It connects law and well-being. So the moral law, the right thing to do, it codified, that is connected with well-being because that's what causes you in direction to flourish in well-being. And that also connects law and spirituality. So there's a way of looking at the moral life that it's all about laws, it's all about doing the minimum, whereas virtue is about aiming at the maximum. So Therefore, virtue in moral theology blends with the quest for perfection in spirituality. So studying virtue does, does all of this for us. Okay, passions. Um, 
Now, the first thing I've made on this point page is the point that there are two different ways in the Catholic tradition that we use this word passion. Sometimes we use it to talk about something bad. Sometimes we use it as I'm referring to it now and St. Thomas does and the catechism predominantly does to actually mean something good. But first, point one there, passions are wicked. What do we mean when we refer to passions in this sense? Well, see, the flesh and especially the passions incline us to sin. And why do they do that? Because of the fall, because of original sin. Uh, Max, can you read the quotation there from St. Alphonsus Liguri? That's there. <clears throat> My outrage to Jesus, by the merits of the weakness you suffered in going to Calvary, give me strength sufficient to conquer all human respect and all my wicked passions, which have led me to despise your friendship. So the passions are referred to as my wicked passions. Yeah. And this is by a saint, St. Alphonsus Liguri, that is from the Stations of the Cross of St. Alphonsus, which are my favourite stations to use. But the way he's referring to the passions is only as a problem in the negative. And this is, in the Catholic tradition, one of the ways we refer to the passions. So often if you're reading a spiritual book, whether it's the imitation of Christ or the spiritual combat or... Um, that refers to the passions as a problem. Um, concupiscence, I, th I then note. What is concupiscence? It's the term used to describe the disorder within our passions. And then I quote the catechism on the definition. It means the movement of the sensitive appetite, note appetite here, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. And concupiscence means that every human has an inherent inclination to sin. Just as a result of being born descended of our first parents. And how original sin, the fall, how are our passions fallen? Well, I say A and B here. Fallen on one level, they tend us towards apparent goods, not real goods. But also they tend us, even when they move us to real goods, either they don't move us strong enough or they move us too strong. Um, so that our passions, therefore, are a problem. There is a disorder within them and they move us to the wrong things, or they move us in the wrong way. And so in this sense, the tradition will speak of passions as wicked, as a problem. But the context you've been reading in this section of the Catechism, um, and we're talking about today, actually the passions aren't a problem. The passions are just a normal part of human functioning. Um, so, turn over the page now. Point two, um, the passions as good. So to say here, the Catechism and St. Thomas uh, both refer to passions as good and as that which orients us to the good. But the passions can be perverted also into the vices. 
So the passions are, as we've quoted on the other page, movements of the sensitive appetite, and they arise when the intellect contemplates something perceived as either good or evil. So in this context, if you read St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa himself, he will often use the word concupiscence, not referring to an inclination to sin, but simply as a movement of desire. So just be aware of that. The word concupiscence in the tradition also gets used differently. So passions and the good, I say point one, only the good can be loved. So that movement of love, it's things that at least appear good that I'm oriented to love. Two, things act for a purpose. Now this is point I want to make here. So I move my hand to make a cup of tea. I don't, my hand doesn't move randomly. The cup of tea doesn't appear randomly. Um, I move it with a purpose. So machines act with purposes programmed into them externally. Animals and humans act, at least in part because a bodily passion points us to a good. So that the passions are in us um, as bodily beings. So angels do not have passions. They don't have bodies. Animals don't have intellects. We have intellects and bodies, and that combination gives us passions. This just semi-automatic movement when I behold something that looks good. Okay. Now if you look back to the board here, these three things, intellect, will, and passions. On the next page here, I'm wanting to kind of indicate how those all engage with something that we would call the good. So I said that, you know, that there's an interplay going on between my thinking and my will and my passions. How does that happen? What triggers what? Okay, top of page three. The good is known both by reason and or by the passions. By reason, the intellect judges something as good for me, perfective of me. I think about it, I consider it, and my intellect makes that judgment. But often, as we know, even almost before thinking, my passions make a kind of snap judgment. So by the passions, by his emotions, man intuits the good and suspects evil, quoting the Catechism. That a passion is a movement of the sensitive appetite that inclines us to act towards something perceived good or evil. Now let's just pause for a minute with that word intuit. So we talk about intuitions, yes? So even without thinking something through in detail, you just get a gut reaction, a gut intuition about something. Now, if you 
that enables us, in a sense, to think quickly when we intuit something. If you only ever did something after you spent an hour slowly thinking it through, you'd do very little in life. But actually, there are many things we do by just intuition. I've been in this situation before, the last time I did this, this worked, and I just intuit more or less the same judgment I made last time. Um, and that my emotions are part of what caused that intuition. That my emotions move me to do what I did before. I've trained myself. So that emotions on one level are a quick way of thinking, a quick way of coming to a judgment. A quick way of recognizing something as good. Not by sitting down and spending an hour rationally thinking it through, but just intuition. I react to it as good. And obviously, if it's really good, then that's great. If I'm reacting to it as good and actually it isn't good, um, then that's a problem. Okay, next little section here. The passions can be evoked or ignored by the will and intellect. So I say we're not just passive before our passions and emotions. Now let me describe it as I do here. So A, in the short term. So first, reasoning. Reasoning can focus on a particular aspect of how an intentional object is perceived. And this evokes a different, different passion. For example, and obviously I'm quoting him from St. Thomas here, focusing on a wolf's teeth evokes the passion of fear, but focusing on a wolf's vulnerability to a sword evokes the passion of daring. So you know, we don't have this scenario very often in the grounds of the PCJ, um, but obviously St. Thomas, um, this was a scenario for him. But you can see, you focus on something different in your thinking, and it evokes a different passion. It's the same thing in front of you, a wolf. But how you think about it evokes a different passion. And the passion is this semi-bodily level of you. It's not just the body. So St. Thomas talks about the passions of the soul, because it's the whole you. But you only have passions because you have a body. So your reasoning, you kind of toy with your thinking to evoke a different passion. Now second, the intellect governs the passions in what St. Thomas calls a political rather than a tyrannical manner. A tyrant commands, but a politician governs and maneuvers free subjects. So I put that in, I think that's a useful image. That you can't just command your passions. I can't see the donors and just command myself not to be moved towards it. But I can maneuver my passions, politically. And my thinking does that political maneuvering. Then thinking of the will, um, the will can direct the reasoning of the intellect to focus its thinking. 
So I command my intellect to think about something else. And lastly, the, the will can choose simply not to consent to the passions. I know I have this passion, I know this passion is strong, but my will can just decide not to consent. And I can do actually the very opposite of what my passion is inclining me towards. So that's all in the short term about how my passions can be changed by my will and intellect. But the long term, in terms of virtue, is really what we're aiming for. Repetition of good interior acts fosters virtues. And this causes our passions to get a habitus of recognizing certain goods. I recognize it as good or as evil. And that repetition of the action trains my reaction and trains the passions to form in a certain way. So the last thing on this page is really what we're aiming for, what we want. The virtuous person is directed to the good by both his passions and his will and intellect. That virtue consists in this, the possession of this integration. So quoting the Catechism again, Emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. And that integration, when all the bits of my person are pulling in the same direction, that's what I want. That gives, according to the Catechism, I said there earlier, that gives joy and ease the spiritual life by having virtue so that I have to fight for that in the short term by thinking clearly by commanding myself not to give in to bad passions um, but by repetition I train myself so that this becomes easy and my thinking and my command of my will and the passions within me are all pulling me to the same goal Any questions, thoughts? Um, I was told, of, I was kind of taught this in a way of, uh, like there's this picture of a man and there's vices, or the, the, the path of vice is when the passions control the intellect and virtue is when the intellect kind of controls the passions. So there's like this, this kind of like movement of authority, which is like virtue is when the intellect is kind of like the authority, and sin is when passions are the authority. Would that be an accurate depiction of it, or? Well, in that depiction, the passions are just viewed as a problem. Mm -hmm. So you control the passions, you suppress them, you don't follow them, but you haven't actually changed them. Mm -hmm. They're still pulling you the wrong way. And there are saints who will talk about the passions that way. So St. Bonaventure, when he talks about the passions, he talks about virtue in the will, but he doesn't talk about virtue in the passions. 
So St. Thomas actually has a, what I think is a more beautiful image, where that actually even at the level of my passions, I can change even them. So that they're pulling me in the right direction. So I'm not just controlling the passions, but I've, I've changed them. Now with respect to the catechism, the catechism actually doesn't name them, because um, the catechism yeah, doesn't say, anyway. Um, but the catechism adopts this Thomistic approach to the, to the passions, in that it talks about this integration of the passions and the will and the intellect, um, not just the control. So we're in a German seminary here, yes? Um, so the German model, the Kantian model of what the good man is, is he doesn't give in to his passions. He is a rational being. He has no emotions. He's utterly suppressed them, yes? Um, that is a model of goodness. That's not what I'm trying to articulate here. So that's not St. Thomas. That's not Aristotle. Um, and it's also not what the catechism is pointing us to either. That the catechism is saying that the passions can actually be taken up. They become a tool to us. Any other comments, thoughts, observations? Okay, so let's look over the page and actually say, well, what is virtue? So I've used this word virtue several times, but I've been so far really talking about passions. Well, what is a virtue? So page four here. First thing I'm going to say is virtue is not a habit. So this is the title of a very famous article by... Um, the French Dominican who you read a bit of at the start of the semester, Soleil Pinquet's. Um, and it's a play on words, because in the Latin, actually, you would say virtue is a habitus. But he's saying it isn't a habit. So in the English language, I'm sorry, I don't know how that would work in Spanish, but in the English language, the word habit implies something mechanical and exterior. Whereas a habitus is something within us. Um, so a virtue gives us a tendency towards a certain type of action. A virtue is just like a habit, but it's not a habit. The Latin term for virtue groups it as a habitus. Both virtues and vices are habitus, or habituses, or habiti. So to, to play out this, a habit concerns a particular material act, the exterior, like smoking, whereas a virtue concerns the interior act. Now I've got a few examples to try and explain what I mean, because I'm trying to make a point. So reading my breviary, 
What am I doing when I'm reading my brief? What is the action? Well, forget what's done on the page a minute, and let me verbalise this to you. So in my parish, there I am doing my breviary. Everything on this page, praise the Lord. Everything on that page, praise the Lord. Um, through I go, and I'm looking at those parishioners. I'm a priest. I'm saying my breviary. They don't even have a breviary. They don't even know how to pray. Mrs. Miggins over there, she's just chatting to so-and-so over there. What am I doing? Actually, I'm doing an act of pride. I'm reading the things on the page. Mechanically, in the exterior, I'm doing the breviary. But the action, what is it? It's an act of pride. So we don't just care about the exterior of the act. At a moral level, it's where the interior and the exterior meet and form a thing. That's what we want to know. So there's a different way of saying the breviary. Now, I don't particularly like saying the breviary. You know, some priests love the breviary. Um, of my entire priesthood, it's the thing I struggle with most. So for me, most of the time, it's an act of perseverance. I get it done. Five times a day, without fail, I persevere. I'm doing the words on the page, and I am persevering. What is the action? It's an act of perseverance. Now, what's it supposed to be? Well, it's supposed to be an act of ecclesial worship, where I don't just worship God, but I worship God in the form the church tells me to, in union with the church throughout the world. And that includes perseverance, um, but it isn't just an act of perseverance. Yeah, so that perseverance is a good thing, but it isn't really what the action's supposed to be about. Um, it's supposed to be an act of ecclesial worship. And every time when I get there with my bravery, and I think through what I'm supposed to be doing. I am doing this in union with the church. I am praising God in union with the church. Every time I engage with it properly, it creates a bit more of a habitus within me so that the next time I'm sat there with the bravery, I'm inclined to do it in that same spirit, to not just get through it. Yeah? <clears throat> So, a habit is an exterior thing, and we all have lots of different habits. In terms of virtue and vice, though, it's that meeting of the interior and the exterior that we're concerned with, that integration of the person. So let's go back to my notes here and the examples just spelled out. So reading my breviary, what is the act? Well, it could be an act of perseverance, could be an act of obedience. The church commands it, I do it. Could be, as St. Thomas would call it, an act of religion, ecclesial worship. That each of these relates to a different virtue, but it's the same exterior mechanical act. And again, as I said, it could be an act of spiritual pride. Not a virtue at all, but a vice.
but still the same exterior action. And I say the will is grasping different objects in each above example. Each different object relates to a different virtue. That repetition of the act, the interior act, not just the exterior mechanical bit, fosters the virtue. Okay, so briefly, that's the big, nice little clerical example for us in, in the seminary. Second example, social drinking. Actually, I don't know if that's a phrase you use on this side of the pond. Um, yes. So what are you doing when you're doing social drinking? So I go down to the bar. Do you go there? Do you knock on your friend's door on your way down to the bar? Because what you want is to have some time with him. And a bar's going to be a place to do that. In that case, you're kind of doing social or do you knock on his door because you want an excuse to have somebody to have a drink with? And it's the drink you want. That it's social drinking that you're doing. Yeah? That the same action you're engaging with differently. Um, and even how you think that through as you're doing it through the evening, you can form something different within you. So it's not just describing the act on the outside that tells you what's going on, but how you, on the inside, engage with it. Okay, third example. This is a classical example from St. Thomas again. Um, virtue of fortitude. So fortitude is, is that strength, that courage to do. Fortitude is the moral virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. It can be manifested in various material actions. A soldier attacking and, this is a key point, a soldier wisely discerning to withdraw. But in both cases, the interior act is the same virtue, namely fortitude. So he can be a man of fortitude both when he attacks, but if he knows defeat is inevitable, but if he withdraws today, he can win tomorrow, he can, in an act of fortitude, withdraw now. But motivated, moved, as an act of fortitude, not as an act of cowardice. So different actions can have the same interior that motivates them. Sometimes guys really struggle with that as an image. But if you grasp that image, you grasp that the virtue is the thing within, and it can manifest itself in a number of different ways on the outside. So a different example, not on the page there. Perseverance. So I say I persevere and say my bravery. I think as a character, I'm a fairly persevering person. Um, there are lots of things in my life that I have trained perseverance in one thing. And then when I come to a new scenario, I'm just able to persevere there as well. 
because I've just got perseverance within me. That perseverance is a thing you can apply in lots of different fields. Where someone who's impatient, well, an impatient person will tend to be impatient not just in one scenario, but in lots of different scenarios. That's something within them that they carry with them, and it's just waiting to manifest itself in a whole new situation. You know, the, the queue at the Krispy Kreme shop. Am I persevering? And I can see it's a 45-minute queue, but, you know, I can persevere. Or it's a 45-minute queue, and the impatience, I'm just 37 different reasons while I'm queuing to get more impatient while, until I get to the front. Um, so what am I trying to say here? You get, you form a habitus, this tendency within you, and it doesn't just manifest itself in one single thing, but in many different things. And this is part of why virtue is so important to work at. Because if you work at it in one scenario, you carry it with you to the next scenario. And that virtue is just waiting, ready to be applied. So that repetition is worth working at. It's also why when you're seeking to grow in holiness, grow in virtue, grow in a particular virtue, that sometimes a key to doing that is to work at it in a field that you find kind of easier so you can grow in it in a scenario that you're succeeding and you then carry that within you as you've grown it into another scenario. So we'll look later in the course in chastity in particular as a, a, a focus. Um, well, often with chastity, rather than attacking it head on, we can work on what St. Thomas calls the allied virtues. So I grow in these allies that kind of then help me in chastity rather than trying to attack it head on and lose. Okay. Bottom of the page again, repetition. So I say, big words and bold about repetition. Um, repetition of the same interior act engenders the corresponding virtue. For example, I repeatedly read my bravery proudly. And I develop the habitus of pride. And this habitus isn't just about the exterior matter of the bravery, but just naturally overflows into different exterior acts so that I also sit in my pew proudly and judge my neighbour proudly. Um, that, that just manifests itself in all kinds of things. Observations, comments? Can, or shouldn't be characterized as a habit because a habit 
or it should be characterized as a habitus because a habitus is only exterior, correct? Sorry, the other way around. The habit is only about the exterior, whereas habitus is about something interior as well as exterior. Okay. Everyone else picked that up? So I'm going to repeat that again, because obviously I didn't say it clearly enough. Um, that the ha we, in the English language, we use the word habit about mechanical things, exterior things. Whereas a habitus in Latin implies something on the interior as well. Now, I've often had arguments with seminarians about whether smoking was a habit or a habitus. So if you're going to argue that it's a habit, you're going to say, it's just something I do. Just something I do. You know, I don't even think about it. I just have to light up and have my... Between classes, I've just got to have it. It's just this mechanical thing I do. Whereas you might say, well, actually, it's not just a mechanical thing on the outside, but there's actually a whole pattern of your interior being that goes with that. So you've had to structure your budgeting around affording the cigarettes, um, about where you're going to get them, about the time slots that you're going to... Um, that there's actually a whole pattern of existence that goes around smoking. Um, so you could probably argue that actually there's no such thing really as a habit that doesn't relate to a habitus. But the point Pinkers, who makes this distinction, is really arguing, is really about explaining what a habitus is, what a virtue is, that it isn't just on the outside. It's this whole interior, how I engage with it. So a virtue is when our interior motives and our exterior motives kind of come together in a uni unified way towards the good. I'd say your interior motives and your exterior behavior. So the, the exterior in the distinction being made here is about behavior, whereas interior is... It is in part motive, but it's kind of everything welling up within you. So I wouldn't want to say it's just intention, just motive. Um, so in the article by Pinkers that I footnote there, Pinkers <coughs> talks a lot about it, but actually he fails to really fully describe what the interior is, other than kind of saying it's a whole bunch of stuff within you. It's not just a single thing. But this is basing it off of the, the actual word, like habit itself, like it's limited. Because like, you know, I guess myself, like whenever I use the word habit, I use internal and external. But is this like the actual root of the word? Is this the distinction here? That's what Pinkers is playing with, yeah. Okay. So it may be that you, in your particular upbringing, have always used the word habit in what he's calling habitus. And that's, in a sense, fine, as long as you grasp the point that when we're talking about a virtue, 
And when we're talking about repetition, it's not enough to repeat the external behavior. So in terms of seminary formation, what's the thing that seminaries all across the world worry about? Uh, it's that you engage with the process of formation just on the external. So you obey, you jump through the hoops, you do what you're told, but within you, nothing has been habituated. You only turn up in the chapel at the times you're told. You don't interiorly have a habitus of prayer. Similarly with work and everything else. That it's only engaged the exterior here and that won't carry into somewhere else because it didn't get into the interior. Whereas, whereas if everything we're doing, we're trying to not just do it on the outside because the seminary says so, um, but to kind of see what's the good here I'm being directed to, so that it informs something within me then even without needing to think about it, when I get to the new place, I just carry that with me. And I will spontaneously get to the new place and think, when's going to be the right time in the morning to pray? When's going to be in this context the time to be going to bed? There'll be all kinds of processes that are within me, habituses, that will just carry forward. Whereas the seminarian who's always complaining, always just only doing this because I've been forced to, and if I go a step further, they'll throw me out, um, then nothing gets habituated beyond grudging obedience. And all you carry with you to the next place is grudging obedience. And you grudgingly obey the pastor where you're first sent, and then you grudgingly obey the bishop when you are a pastor. Um, so, what we're looking for in virtue isn't just the exterior conforming, but a meeting of the exterior and the interior, so that you get the right motive, get the right intention. You have made yourself to be a certain type of thing that you carry with you into the next scenario. Okay, page five then. So here, what I've done is I've just quoted the definition of virtue from the catechism, um, and I'm then just going to pull out a few words from that definition to kind of articulate what I think I've already said, hopefully several times. Uh, Josh, can you read that? Yep. A virtue is a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends toward the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. Uh, there's a whole lot in that definition. But first, an habitual and firm disposition. So St. Um, Pinker's phrase is a quasi-natural inclination. 
it's something within you that is in your character you're just moved inclined towards it it's stable therefore it's hard to change allows the person to give the best of himself so again quoting Pinker's virtue is a perfection of power an operative habit a good habit productive of good works it's an excellence so it just naturally moves in you know, the same way that a plant a flower um, no what I'm trying to say a daffodil just has a dynamism to produce a flower that the man of virtue just has a dynamism to produce actions of that virtue Tends towards the good in concrete actions. Concrete actions, specific actions. So specific material acts may vary, but the same good is pursued in each act of the virtue. Each virtue is defined by its object. So I say such objects are defined by their interior nature, for example, justice, not just exterior money. There are as many different virtues as there are different types of action. I different objects, though some virtues and acts are more foundational than other virtues or acts. Now let me pause for a moment there explaining that point. So, as St. Thomas and Aristotle map this all out, there are, it's not just like there is virtue, there are virtues in the plural every different bit of your human activity there's a different way of perfecting it a different way of doing it right and when you perfect it you have the virtue that corresponds to that activity now some activities are so minor that we don't even have a word for them um, okay but let's think of the um, action of having good posture Right? So if I, as a priest, um, have good posture, that is a thing. Um, there's, there's just an appropriate way to hold myself. That I am a priest. I'm supposed to represent the church. I'm supposed to have dignity. I shouldn't be a slob. You know, I walk around like this, and this just presents a different image. I should hold myself in a certain way. But I shouldn't look like a man who is so prim and proper that he is clearly more concerned about himself and his image than he is about you. Um, that there's a right way and a wrong way of holding myself. And that holding myself should have an awareness of how I'm interacting with others. Uh, that there's a, just one single action like that brings together a whole bunch of different things in my character. Okay, a different particular action, study. This is something St. Thomas talks about at length, being a scholar. But the habit of study, or of studiositas, there is a right way to study, and there is a, a habit a pattern, a habitus of good study. 
And what does that involve? It involves lots of things. Um, but it's a very particular action. But there's a good way of doing it and a bad way of doing it. So what, what are some of the enemies of study? Well, one of the enemies of study, he talks about, is curiosity. So that you're there in the library, and instead of reading about the thing that your assignment's focused on, you start flipping through about this weird thing that's actually a lot more interesting than the thing you're supposed to be doing. Um, curiosity, and before you know it, you've spent an hour looking at all these different bits uh, and not doing anything about the thing you're supposed to do. The curiosity is one of the enemies of study. Because you're studying for a reason. There's a, a thing you're supposed to be looking at now. Curiosity is one of the enemies of study. Then obviously laziness is an enemy of study. Um, you know, that lots of... Study one particular field of activity that by habituation, by bringing ourselves to it with right focus, right intention, we can habituate ourselves to a whole pattern of activity that's just kind of about one thing, study. So every bit of your life, there is a right way of perfecting it. And when you perfect it, you perfect you have the virtue of that particular thing. And many, in a sense, those particular things are so small, we don't even have a word for them. But there is a perfect way of doing it. Neither too much, nor too little. The right way. So brushing your teeth. There is a virtue to brushing your teeth right. Not just mechanically, but even not being overly concerned so that there's nothing left to your gums, um, or spending more time on it than is important. Um, the smallest activity, there's a right way of being doing it perfectly. And sometimes with those small activities, a big part of the right way is not wasting too much time on it. Okay. Back to my notes here. So halfway down the page, page five. Virtue enables a semi-automatic recognition of good deeds as opposed to evil deeds. I.e. less reflection is needed to realize what's right and what's wrong. Then I quote Pinkes, uh, Aquinas, there are two ways of judging. A man may judge in one way by inclination, as whoever has the habit of a virtue judges rightly what concerns that virtue by the very inclination towards it. Hence it is the virtuous man, as we read in Aristotle, who is the measure and rule of human acts. But then there's another way of judging, by knowledge. Just as a man learned in moral science might be able to judge rightly about virtuous acts, though he has not the virtue. So, um, when you do something first, the first time, you have to think it through. You have to judge it by thinking, the, the second way here. 
But when you've done that deed many times, you no longer need to think it through in detail. You just have a, by habitus, inclination to judge and measure it right. And that obviously saves you time, uh, saves you effort. You can be putting that effort and time into other things. So this is one of the things that's good about virtue. And the goal. What's the goal, the aim of all this? The goal is to become like God. All the other virtues interrelate and are subordinate to that common end. Growth in any one virtue implies a growth in all the virtues, because they're all related. Possessing any one virtue in totality implies the possession of all virtues. So although it always feels like we're working on one virtue by itself, Actually, anything we grow in, we grow in the others as well. Because they all connect. Okay, then lastly on that page, joy and ease. Virtue means that specific good acts become easy. Quoting the Catechism, the virtues make possible ease, self-mastery, and joy in leading a morally good life. The virtuous man is he who freely practices the good. Whereas conversely, opposing a habit of sinners is difficult. Acting in accord with a habit is pleasant. It brings a certain amount of joy. Okay, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So the other pages there we're gonna go through on Friday. Um, and I'm kind of going to recap all of this, but I have a last point for these last three minutes. Um, talked about the virtuous mean in any of your ethics courses. Some of you have. Um, so basically, in terms of virtue theory, for every, every deed that, that you can do right, there's two ways you can do it wrong. You can do too much or too little. So how much time should I spend on this particular subject? Well, I could spend too much or I could spend too little. There's be two ways of doing it wrong. In between, there's what Aristotle calls the virtuous mean. And if you notice, it isn't halfway, it's between. Now, whether it's closer to excess or closer to deficiency depends on the different activity. It varies with different activities. Some things, well, St. Thomas gives the example, um, chastity. Chastity is a lot more like being frigid and not enjoying sex than it is about lust. Um, whereas being brave is much closer to the extreme of foolhardiness than being a coward. So where you are between the extremes is different in different fields of activity. Okay, I'm gonna pause there now. So we're gonna come back to this on Friday. Um, so this is, for me, the heart of this whole course. 
um, big thing. And as hopefully you've been picking up, all of this relates to, to how we live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be for all that end. Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. May the souls of the faithful departed, the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.